Hello, it's 21st of January 2018, and this is episode 56 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star's news, analysis, and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. How's your week been, Kirsty? It's been good. I've been reading more of the Legends of Luke Skywalker book. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'd started before Christmas um, and before The Last Jedi came out, obviously. Um, but now reading it, it's kind of like you have a different perspective because you know more about what Luke's been actually up to. Mm. Um, and it kind of, uh, it's just kind of funny reading these stories that are obviously, most of them are tall tales, but there's like a hint of truth in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Isn't yeah. there something about the fishing pole in one of them? Yeah. Um, mm. So yeah, there's like little bits that in hindsight seem more like hints towards what he's up to on Octo and there's still so much mystery around what he was doing with Ben before everything went down, obviously. Yes. Hopefully we get all that stuff soon. And um, I saw someone a while ago tweet at tweet about the book and they said that they feel like it's the kind of thing that should have come out about two years ago. And I mm. kind of see their point because it's like at this point, <laughs> as fun as those legends are, you kind of just want to know what he's been up to, right? Yeah. And exactly. you only get these little hints in the movie because like, you can tell they're still holding back on things. Yeah. But... It feels a little bit bullshitty almost. <laughs> yeah. It's try- trying to have their cake and eat it too with a cannon, but whatever. <laughs> it's still entertaining reading. So how about yeah. you? Um, yeah. I'm feeling emotionally compromised because I made the mistake of watching <laughs> Requiem for a Dream before we did this podcast. <laughs> if I had known that you were going to do that, I would have said maybe wait until afterwards. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about Canto Bite and Finn and Rose. Yeah, so basically if I'm a little bit nihilistic or depressive in um, my analysis of the Finn and Rose strand of The Last Jedi, you can blame Darren Aronofsky and tweet him with your complaints because it's all his fault. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's a great film, but it does destroy your soul and I never want to see it again. Yeah, I remember feeling pretty down for a few days after watching that movie. It was a while ago, but it affected me, so. Yeah. So this time there might be, like, a bit of a change-up. Like, Kirsty's going to have to be the bright and optimistic one, <laughs> always seeing, like, the positive side of everything. And I'm going to be, like, the downer, being like, oh, yeah, it's all a bit crap, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Not literally. Like, there is lots of stuff to love, and I will be positive as well. But, yeah, if I do sound a bit down at all, then... Again, play Maronofsky. So I also watched Pi yesterday. So if you have seen Pi and Rec Room for a Dream, then you know I've had a great weekend because <laughs> what an uplifting series of films, man. There's stuff that happens in Pi that involves br- brains and sharp objects that I do not want to go into in any more depth. Yeah, I mean, it's Aronofsky, so to a certain extent, you know what you're getting yourself into in <laughs> terms of expect the unexpected. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, to calm down a little, and because there's lots of stuff to cover, we should probably get into it. And the first thing to talk about is that we had Missar Ryan Johnson on the Empire podcast. And the glory of the Empire podcast is that when they have the filmmaker on, for the most part, they do spoiler specials. And they did one on The Last Jedi, which is quite delightful, and I'd recommend that you listen to it. And yeah, there were some really interesting quotes from Ryan about the movie, and I thought we'd discuss some of them. So yeah, 
we'll I'll read them out each in turn, Kirsty, and then we'll discuss each one. So it's not just this huge globulous mass of me talking and that there's actual discussion interwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, so these pieces are from an article that they put online that kind of summarise parts of the podcast, right? Correct, yes, yeah. because I was much too lazy to transcribe it. <laughs> well, you don't need to. They did it for us. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's win-win all round. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, the first point is that Luke and Kylo's views are built to mirror each other. With Kylo Ren ready to burn everything down and Luke Skywalker choosing to hide away, there was a lot to explore their different philosophies. From the very start, there was the theme of let the past die, expressed through Kylo very strongly, and to some extent, for much of the movie by Luke, it's one of the interesting things of the movie that these two opposite poles have come to the same conclusion, explains the director. I always think if you're cutting off the past, you're fooling yourself, just burying it in a place where it'll come back. The only way forward is where Ray actually lands which is to build on the past, not necessarily to wallow in it in the way that Luke does. Yoda's lesson to him with the Jedi books, not to wallow in it or wallow in its destruction, but to take what's best from it, build on it, and appreciate it and move forward. I like this sentiment very much, Kirsty. What do you think? Well, I like it, but probably because it's the sentiment that we share and were talking about last week. Yeah. It's like, ding, ding, ding! <laughs> yeah, that Ray sees... Luke and Kylo, yeah, expressing this in their own ways and struggling because of it. And she goes through her journey in the movie and says, no, you know what? I've seen what you guys have to offer and I'm going to go my own way and take the stuff on board and learn from it and move forward. Mm. So it's great. And it does tie back to that wonderful teaser poster when you think about mm-hmm. it as well. Yeah. Race smack bang in the middle of them. Yeah. Because they're both too extreme, really. And like I think Luke realises that he was being much too extreme as well because he obviously goes on an arc and he ends up in a much better, more positive place than he started it. Um, but yeah, they weren't giving her very good life advice, essentially. And <laughs> Ray comes to much better conclusions, which he acts upon. Uh-huh. And yeah, like I like that um, he Ryan points out that Kylo and Luke, they ultimately come to the same conclusion about like destroying things and letting the past die, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it makes sense because of what they both went through together. Obviously, they were on very different sides of that conflict, but it's a trauma that stuck with them both, shaped their lives. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that moment where Luke went into Ben's tent, that did result in both of them having this furry like dark outlook on existence essentially and feeling that destroying the past was the only way to make things right again and of course by destroying the past they mean in different ways because when Luke is like let the Jedi end his whole reasoning behind that is let the Jedi end because what good has come from the Jedi I don't see much good like because he's kind of downplaying his own achievements and he can only focus on all the things that the Jedi got wrong and Ben obviously wants to let the past die because the past is the source of all his trauma. So his response to that trauma is to deal with it by trying to just eradicate everything. Like get rid of every trace of the things that wounded him. And yeah, it's not a good coping mechanism, which is ultimately, in my opinion, what he comes to appreciate. Yeah, and it's really quite tragic the way Kylo 
in his own way, is trying to help Ray move past the tragedy of her history as well. Mm. Um, and like urging her to let go, but he can't do it himself. So he's part of her journey into do- being able to do that and f- through it, her rejection of him. Mm. Um, but then he's kind of stuck in that place and it's kind of ambiguous at the end. Like you can see him starting to put it together and like feeling that pain finally, yeah. but um, it leaves it up in the air as to what it's actually going to end up looking like at nine. Yeah. So now I think about it, it's actually really interesting because there's a quote in Leia, Princess Voldron, and I think Leia says it to Holdo. And it's something like, if you let yourself be be defined by the thing that you dislike, even if it's to like go in the completely opposite direction and like, reject it and like be as different from it as you possibly can be, you're still letting that thing define you. So you're mm-hmm. not truly escaping from it. And I think that's very much what Kylo's guilty of because he is letting his past trauma define him completely. Mm-hmm. And I think he's all about destroying the past and getting rid of the past without having any like clear concept of what he wants the future to be. And I think that's why he latches on to Rey in such an intense and pa- powerful way because suddenly when he sees her, he sees a future with her. He sees something to build towards and something hopeful waiting for him and then of course when that's all stripped away at the end through his own idiocy then it's like 10 times more tragic because he had it in his grasp and then it's gone again through his own mistakes Mm -hmm. (sighs) pretty depressing (laughs) (laughs) but it's all couched in like star wars corniness so yeah exactly yeah it's not like shooting yourself up in the arm (laughs) 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 oh my goodness Kylo Ren is sunshine and rainbows compared to Requiem for a Dream (laughs) (laughs) yes he is (laughs) walking on sunshine Um, (laughs) right then point two Luke's death had to have resonance Luke's end is very different from that of Han Solo in The Force Awakens but no less impactful there's a reason for that and his journey in the film leads to that point. He's taken himself out of the fight. He's sitting on the island in exile. I know the Luke I grew up with is not a coward. He's not sitting out there hiding. So I had to come up with a reason he was there that was active and positive, and something I could genuinely believe I could think in his shoes, says Johnson. And the thing that came to me that seemed to make sense to me is this notion that he seems... is is this notion that he sees this hero worship of him and of the Jedi that is detrimental to the galaxy. The universe has put its faith in its false god of the Jedi, and they need to forget the religion so they, so they can get back to God, that light can rise from a worthier source. And because he's the last Jedi and a symbol of that, it then becomes this self-sacrifice he has to do to take himself out of it when he knows his friends are dying, when he knows the thing he'd like to do is get back in the fight, He's taken the weight of the world on his shoulders by taking himself out of the equation so that the Jedi can die out. The end of the movie is him embracing the part of the past that the present needs, which right now is the legend of Luke Skywalker. They need something to believe in. They need the action figure of Luke Skywalker to grab onto, that inspiration to stare up at the stars and believe that you can be a hero. I wanted Luke's staff to be peaceful, to be on his terms. I wanted it to be a victory. I wanted it to be that he's done this huge grand act that has restored the spark of hope to the galaxy. 
I'm hesitant to put into words what he does in the end, but it is completed. I think what's most interesting here, to me, is the way that he's hesitant to put into words what he does in the end. That does make me wonder if he's talking about what Luke says to Kylo. And mm. like what his whole intent is in going to Kylo like that and speaking to him in those terms. So I think Ryan might consider that a bit spoilery or consider it to have too many implications for Nine so he doesn't want to get into that. Do you, do you kind of yeah. get that vibe? Well, I think part of it might be that um, we're probably going to get Luke as a force ghost, but he doesn't want to confirm that for Nine because obviously it's not his story. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, that, you, that he's talking about... Um, re- some kind of resolution with Kylo, even if it's not a full um, acceptance. But it's mm. it's Luke accepting what he had done and still loving his nephew. But obviously on Kylo's end, there's still a lot to work through. Yeah. Like, so I saw some really brilliant methods about this on Tumblr, actually, and I can't remember who did them off the top of my head, for which I apologise. I normally like to credit people. But it's someone pointing out about how like the whole planets of crate is almost like this open wound mm. like it's all bloody beneath that deceptive white surface yeah it's very striking isn't it once they've had yeah. this battle there's so much red it looks really gruesome yeah exactly it's really like scarred and damaged but this meta also pointed out that salt like that's used in medicine it's like a healing substance even though it has a sting it's painful at first and i think the whole idea was that luke in going to Kylo like that and saying the things he says to Kylo, it is kind of him starting the healing process in a way. Mm. And I really, really like that idea. And I hope that is something that's, if it is the case, it's made clearer in episode nine, because I think that would be a really lovely way to like cap out Luke's story as well. So I do think there's something very depressing about it. If like, he's just like, nah, Ben's gone. (laughs) Screw him. Oh yeah, I don't think that's what he was saying at all. Yeah, no, nor do I. Yeah, and I just really like the sentiments that Ryan expresses generally about Luke here. Um, because, yeah, like I think it's a really much more complicated film than it first seems. And I'm not sure I fully understood all of this, like on my first viewing or maybe even my second viewing. It took a while for this to coalesce for me. Mm. Because like that whole lesson to Ray where he's talking about believing that only the Jedi can possess the light, that's vanity like I didn't really read that scene as like Luke's rationale behind going to this island to die, like I read it as him like teaching Ray but I didn't quite make that leap to Luke's own personal motives for his self-exile did you do that? Yeah I thought it was about him trying to say that um there should be more light side users beyond the Jedi. And we know that there have been. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that if the Jedi feel ownership of that, and you can see in the prequels that they kind of do, they have this sense of possessiveness that like they own the force and that they're so arrogant. They don't believe it's possible that a Sith could be back. Mm. But I agree. There's a lot going on and that's probably why we're going to be talking about it every week for a while. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of mileage to get out of it. Um, Yeah, do you want to read out the next part, Kirsty? Sure. So it says, Kylo and Rey's connection is complicated for a reason. The complicated relationship between Kylo Ren and Rey is one of the biggest strands of the film, for good reason. How does Johnson fall on how it affects them both? 
To write these characters, I always have to get inside their heads. I tend to step inside and have the most generous reading of any character's motivation possible, says Johnson. I'll say this. The moment when Kylo makes his appeal for her to join him, and Adam captured it so well in his little please, it was important to me that it wasn't a chess game. It wasn't just a manipulation. It's unhealthy, and there's much that is awful about the way that he is manipulative. From his point of view, it's a very naked, open, emotional appeal. It's his version of, I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy. The same way as when he tells his version of the story with Luke. That's his experience of his moment. I really like this quote. Did you ever imagine that the director of The Last Jedi would talk about something that Kylo says to Rey and compare it to a love declaration from Notting Hill? Um, I hadn't thought about it too much, but... (laughs) Judging by fandom's reactions to things and how he probably has needed to spell out a lot of things. Mm. Yeah, I guess. And even then, because the story is nuanced and because the characters are complicated, this contains a lot of things that might be hard for people to 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 take it all on board, to take mm. on the fact that it's a naked emotional appeal. Yeah. Kylo's being genuine in the way he feels. And also that it's unhealthy and that is okay. Yeah, like we've talked about it before, this kind of purity culture, especially in terms of romance, especially when there's a central heroine involved. There's this idea that if something is unhealthy, it can't be part of a story. Mm. Um, But maybe it's because I'm coming at this from a gothic lit fan perspective. But Mm. this was all right there in the story. And that's okay. Like, that's what you need to have conflict and emotional investment and yeah. oh my god what's going to happen mm. you know so it's okay because you can see that in what Kylo's doing that he's screwing up but it's coming from this place where he genuinely has he's fallen for her yeah and that's the tragedy yeah exactly it's like that's what makes it work so well the fact it is all these things at once it's not like a straightforward declaration of love because it's not entirely positive and it's not coming from the right place in that moment like because his feelings are sincere but it's all complicated and messed up by like the other factors that he has going on and this like belief in his Skywalker destiny that means in that moment it doesn't make sense to him to just go with Rey and just be with her and have that be enough it only makes sense for her to be with him in the context of her being his queen and them ruling the galaxy side by side. Because, of course, that's mm-hmm. the kind of bullshit that Skywalkers do. So, <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't mean that either like, perspective on it is invalid. It just means they're both true at the same time. And like you say, that is difficult, I think, to pass, especially in yeah. like modern times. Because, I don't know, like if you think like about like the the... Mar- the villain in the last Marvel film, you know, like Hela in Thor Ragnarok. You could not talk about Hela in the same way you can talk about Kylo in this sort of scene because there just isn't that kind of like emotional complexity. Like it's always come in from like a purely bad place. You know, it's not like, oh, I love my brother and I really want to like do the right thing by him. Like he's like, nope, she's just purely manipulating him and she just like wants to use people to dominate the entire galaxy or whatever it is. Like, whereas with Kylo, it is that genuine emotion, and then that creates the tragedy when it all goes wrong. And, mm. 
Yeah, I see Kylo and Loki um, compared a lot in fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've seen those Thor movies now, and I kind of get what people are saying, but they just don't have the same depth. Yeah, um, definitely. So I, I just don't find myself caring that much. Yeah. But I know that he does have a big fandom, and I see this like similar kind of concern trolling about the fans who are predominantly female fans. Mm. Um, and I just, I don't know. I don't think it's true of the general audience. So I don't think there's anything to, like this is all things that most people can take on board. They're like, oh, wow, Kyla really fucked up. But obviously yeah. there's something going on between these two characters. Yeah. But the way that online fandom discusses these things, it's so black and white. And it's so like, no, he's bad. He made her cry. He did something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, those things are all true. Yeah. But it's still part of the story. Exactly. I hate to say it, but she cried in that scene in large part because she cares so much about him in turn. Right. It's not just about, oh, Kylo's being mean to me. <laughs> it's more like, I saw like what you could be. I saw like what you were like as a child before everything went so wrong for you. And I do see hope and goodness and like potential for great things in you. But then you go and f- toss it all down the toilet because I've mm-hmm. an asshole. <laughs> And yeah, that's what in large part where those tears are coming from. And th- that's again why you just can't have simple reads of these characters and their interactions because there's so many layers to it. And that's why we can podcast about it for hours and hours and hours. I know, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you delivered that in the most amazing way. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but we love it. So. Yanks. Right, do you want to read the next part as well, Kirsty? Yeah. Uh, Ray's parentage was a clear choice. While there had been many theories about who Ray's parents might be, could she be a Skywalker related to Snoke? (laughs) Johnson chose to go a very different route, choosing to label them, in Kylo Ren's words, nobodies. Okay, this is a pet peeve of mine, actually. Mm. That is also Ray's word. Mm. She says it first. Why is everyone like... (laughs) Why is that... Somehow, like, universally forgotten. That actually made it frustrating to listen to the podcast that came after the interview of Ryan. Because I I love the Empire podcast, and I love the people on it. They're all great. But they were basically saying that they got the impression from The Last Jedi that Ryan just didn't give a crap about anything that JJ had done in his movie. So he just chose to willfully ignore it and do his own thing. And because of that, they think that JJ coming back to episode 9 he's going to go the other way and do all the things he originally intended to including like switching Ray's parentage to whatever and they were saying this in all sincerity after having like heard these comments from Ryan and it's like how do you not get this it's like ah so are people counting on a bad trilogy <laughs> yeah because that doesn't sound very good to me well that's the thing I don't know what people want or expect like because I don't see how anyone could plausibly justify Ray Skywalker or Ray Solo at this point you know like I I don't think you could really do that after The Force Awakens but I think The Last Jedi truly like drove the nail in you know I don't know maybe, maybe people want her to be Kenobi or something I suppose if if you wanted to go with Kenobi you could still say oh her parents were nobody but her grandfather was Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> exactly like it's kind of like that case where you have like this mega star celebrity and then they have these like nobody children who like do nothing for their lives but just get wasted 
Yeah. And that's the child of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And yeah, it's a pretty sorry, sad tale. But oh well, at least you get Ray. So Anyway, sorry, I'll finish the quote. Okay. Says the director, I went through all the possibilities of who her parents could be. I made a list with the upsides and downsides. There were two things about this option that made it feel right to me. Firstly, I like the idea that we're breaking out from the notion that the force is the genetic thing that you have to be tied to somebody to have. It's the anybody can be president idea, which I liked introducing. The foremost thing was just dramatically storytelling wise. The way I like to put it is in The Empire Strikes Back, the big revelation is I am your father. It's a big surprise, but I think the reason it lands is not because of that, but because it's the hardest possible thing that Luke and hence the audience could hear at that moment. You've had a bad guy that you can hate, that you can project your shadow onto cleanly. He's evil. It's simple. With that one line, suddenly that easy answer gets taken away from you, and he's something our protagonist has a relationship to, and has to think in more complex terms, in terms of layers of redemption. For me, if Ray had gotten the answer that she's related to so-and-so, had learned her place in the story, that would be the easiest thing she can hear. The hardest thing to hear is, nope, this is not going to define you. And in fact, Kylo is going to use this to try and undercut your confidence, so you'll feel you have to lean on him for your identity, and you're going to have to make the choice to find your own identity in this story. I mean, really here, Ryan is laying out Rey's journey in The Last Jedi, so how anyone could think that that's going to be walked back is like, no, this is all very important to Rey. Exactly. And it also bothers me because there were interviews with J.J. Abrams from around the time The Force Awakens was coming out. And he was making really similar comments. He was saying about how he really liked the story and found it powerful because it was telling the story about young people coming from nothing, coming from these Mm -hmm. deeply humble origins and then doing these amazing things. And yeah, like if you make Rey like Obi-Wan's granddaughter or the child of Luke Skywalker or something like that, you completely undercut that because, well, then she's not really nobody, is she? She is somebody. She just doesn't know it yet, which is just the story of the original trilogy done again. And the whole point of the sequel trilogy should be that it's a different story in order to justify its existence because, yeah, if it's just this other story of this child who was sent away and... They need to find their identity by reuniting with their legendary parent and having this hugely cathartic um, reunion with them where they redeem them or whatever. Like, it's like, then what's the point? Why are you telling the story? Like, and I think that's why it's so key to Ryan and to JJ that this is the story of a young woman of humble birth who comes to be a hero in her own right and decides what her own story is going to be. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting in The Last Jedi when Rey talks about her parents, she says they were nobody as if um, her parents' social status would have mattered to her. Mm. You know, like instead of in The Force Awakens, you kind of get the impression that she's just desperate to be reunited with her family, whoever they are, like because family. And then in this one, it's almost like it's very close to breaking the fourth wall in terms of being quite meta about the themes and what fandom expects for the legacy of this character. Like yeah. to say, oh, they were nobody. They weren't famous or special. Like in to the character, that shouldn't necessarily matter. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point. Um, I kind of took it to be because she's always like been following these stories of these legends, like Luke Skywalker. Because when she first meets Finn on Jakku, it's like Luke Skywalker. I thought he was a myth. So she's clearly very well versed in all these stories, as she indicates to Luke when she tells him what she's heard about the things that he achieved. 
So I guess perhaps it's this idea of growing up and hearing all these stories about these great heroes. And then she really is swept into that story in a big way. And she's probably thinking back to President and like, well, there's all these stories about children being sent away from their parents and having these like grand reveals of their lineage and that allowing them to discover their place in the story. And maybe that will happen to me. Like, mm. like that's obviously going far beyond the movie. None of that is explicit in the movie. But that was kind of how I was making sense of it in my head. Yeah, I suppose it could be also her defining and contrasting herself in relation to Kylo. Um, because obviously he's someone on her level and yet he comes from this grand lineage and maybe she feels a level of insecurity about that. Yeah, definitely. Because he, he does offer her like an easy answer to that crisis of self because the solution he basically offers is be with me and then you'll be defined through your relationship with me. Yeah, you can take my last name. Yeah, exactly. It's very feudal, really, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. So come into my household, woman, and then I will assimilate you. <laughs> Again, I don't think it's conscious. It goes back to what we were saying before about how complex all of this is. Like, he's not there thinking about this in, like, a cynical way. It is coming from the place of, I love you, and I want to give you this belonging, I want to give you this place. But it's also coming from a selfish place for him, which is why it comes out in such a terribly wrong way (laughs) yeah that's what i really appreciate well one of the many things i appreciate about the story is that it is very feminist in that ray does come to be like no i have to define myself on my own terms yeah um and yeah like that obviously love is very important because you can see their hearts breaking Mm. um but that that's it's also important for her to have her own identity and her sense of morality is it's there it's not like she's going to throw it away for the sake of that companionship as lonely as she's been yeah exactly it's so ridiculously jane Eyre, isn't it when we're talking oh, yeah. about it when like it's revealed that rochester is already married and he like offers to make jane his mistress yeah she's like i cannot do this yeah and of course she like ray is completely appalled because like <laughs> no thank you um because yeah that's from rochester it's a very selfish offer like, it's all about, well, this will be convenient for me, and this will work for me, and this will allow me to love you in, like, a convenient and socially acceptable way. So, yeah, let's do it. Mm. So and is Ray running back to the Resistance her St. John moment? I definitely think, like, Ray going back to the Resistance, that is almost like a, yeah, her being taken in by the school teachers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I need to have a more, we need to have a more fully thought out episode on that. We should do like the literary influences of the Last Jedi. That'd yeah, I mean fun. we did it for the Force Awakens, right? Yeah, we should totally do that. Um, but yeah, I think that's all the main quotes we had to read out from that Empire podcast. Was there anything else that stuck out to you that you want to talk about from that podcast, Kirsty? Oh, I can't remember now. It's probably at least a week ago that I listened to it, but I would recommend that people go and listen to it because it was really great. Yeah, that podcast is good in general so yeah i really want to hear ryan talk more about the movie with spoilers please oh same i could listen to him talk about it all day yeah and you can tell he's so excited to talk about it which makes me happy in turn seriously the commentary Mm. is going to be so wonderful it's like give me give me give me give me (laughs) (sighs) um right so yeah cartoon brew they have an interview with the ilm animation supervisor steve aplin 
and he had lots of really interesting stuff to say about Snoke in The Last Jedi. And yeah, it's a really great interview, so I'd encourage people just to check it out in general, but there's just one specific part where I wanted to talk about it, because I found it quite revealing about the intentions behind Snoke's characterization. So yeah, here's a quote. A major challenge for ILM also lay in working in a simmering rage to Snoke, even though during the main throne room sequence he is quite cordial at times with Kylo and Rey. Snoke is almost like a pleasant uncle, said Aplin. It's like, so, come in, Ray, come and sit by the fire. But then, as he continues to talk, we really had to work, especially when we got into the close-ups of his micro-expressions, which told another story, that he's simmering under there, there's a rage going on. And yeah, I, I disliked this, and this will sound a bit vain, but <laughs> I liked it because it kind of ties back to the conversation we were having in the Kylo episode about... Well, what did Kylo even think was going to happen when he took Rey to Snoke like that? Because Mm. I made the case that, I hate to say it, but I genuinely think that he thought that Snoke was going to be all like welcoming to Rey and be like, oh yes, join our club of evil and and you and Kylo will go off and train together and it'll be (laughs) lovely and it'll be one happy family. (laughs) And yeah, I know that sounds a bit ridiculous, but I do think this quote kind of supports that because yeah, it's all about how changeable this character is and about how he can seem more benevolent and kind and welcoming when he wants to. Yeah, that's obviously not the true picture of the character. So, Yeah, I think it speaks to the cycle of abuse that Kylo and even Hux, right, in mm-hmm. The Last Jedi experiences that they have this hot and cold from Snoke where he'll build them up and then tear them down. <clears throat> yeah. And Kylo's taking Rey in and that's what he finds that Snoke is, oh, my my faith is restored, you know? It's like, okay, so this is a good meeting. Things aren't yeah. going to go wrong here. And then he's obviously, like, lured in. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they do such a great job with Snoke because you can really – you can see it simmering there under the surface. Like, he, he's he's just got this tone of mockery, you know, yeah. and in his gestures as well when his, like, hands come together as he's talking and stuff like that. Yeah. No, it's really effective, and I really love that shot where it's just close-ups of his face as he's looking at Ray. And yeah, it's effective because it's they're such complete contrasts in all ways. Because Snoke is so decadent and wealthy in this like ostentatious golden robe, whereas Ray's obviously in this humble dress, and then he's so like ancient and decrepit, and like his face is so sunken. Whereas Ray is young and beautiful and unblemished and everything. Not to say that <laughs> obviously lazy assumptions about beauty equals goodness. And The Last Jedi does fall into that trap to a certain extent because, yeah, like snow ain't an oil painting. But it's just interesting because you just get this very powerful image of this elderly man like using these two young people and thinking that he's got the better of them and then it makes it delicious when it's all turned upside down. Um, Right, then the last news thing to talk about is that there has been a Han Solo synopsis released um, and this is something that Kirsty reminded me to include. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just pointed that out. <laughs> Sorry, you are that like... excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm thrilled about this. Um, no, like, I, I am looking forward to Han Solo, so, yeah, let, let me read this. This is the synopsis to Han Solo, a Star Wars story. Buckle your seatbelts, kids. Board the Millennium Falcon, 
journey to a galaxy far, far away. In Solo, Star Wars story, an all-new adventure with the most beloved scoundrel in the galaxy. For a series of daring escapades deep within a dark and dangerous criminal underworld, Han Solo meets his mighty future co-pilot Chewbacca and encounters the notorious gambler Lando Calrissian in a journey that will set the course of one of the Star Wars saga's most unlikely heroes. I'm most excited about Lando, honestly. Yes. Yeah. No, Donald Glover is so good. And I think it will be really nice to see his interpretation. Mm-hmm. Because Lando is just such a fun character by default. You know, he's always so like ostentatious and such a big presence. That, yeah, I think like Glover will have lots of fun with him. Yeah, I know in general there's been a lot of skepticism about this movie and it hasn't helped. Obviously, they've had all the talk about the new director and the reshoots and everything, um, but there's not much else to go on. So the synopsis really doesn't give that much away. So it's like, okay, I might like it, might not. But yeah, um, it's kind of nice in a way because it's like the complete reversal of the lead up to The Last Jedi in terms of people having such strong expectations. Mm. Um, ho- hopefully we can all go in and just enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, I really want to try this soon because I really just want to be able to start talking about this movie in terms of what the actual movie is rather than, oh, they replaced the directors or, yeah. oh, no one really cares about Han Solo, do they? You know, like, I think as long as we get a fun, exciting trailer, hopefully we'll see the narrative change because, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I don't want to be apathetic about a Star Wars movie. I love Star Wars, you know? And I think I just need that trailer to make me excited and get me on board. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to see it. And I'm sure there'll be the usual, like, picking apart the new Han and everything. That's not my solo. Yes. Um, But whatever. (laughs) I have seen it it suggested that they could do, um, like, a framing device, like in Princess Bride, where the story of the solo movie is being told as a bedtime story to a young Ben Solo which I would love so, so, so much. <laughs> I don't think I'll do that. I've seen that, yeah. But oh, that would be so great. I would die for that. Um, but yeah, I, I won't like build my hopes up too much because <laughs> that's very unlikely. Right, so then to move on from the joys of the Han Solo synopsis, we have a spotlight on Finn and Rose. Because, yeah, we're gradually working our way through the movie in terms of its characters. Because this is like our first approach to the film and yeah i think it's going pretty well so far i'm having fun with it and yeah so we've done ray and kylo so far and we thought now would be a good time to go into finn and rose and we're going to talk about these two together because their stories they really are so like intertwined i don't think you can really discuss them separately would you agree with that kirsty yeah i mean you could but you'd end up going over a lot of the same ground yeah um like there was kind of a bit of a similar problem with Ray and Kylo because obviously a lot of their scenes double up but it's also kind of different because with Ray she has a very healthy chunk of scenes that are just her and Luke right for example whereas with Finn like he has like a few early scenes that are more with Poe but besides that it's pretty much all with Rose so mm-hmm. yeah right and then, interestingly, <laughs> we're going to start off by talking a little about a scene that involves neither Finn nor Rose, but it does have very big implications for their story, so I wanted to bring it up. And that's the scene with Paige in her bomber, 
where she basically has to drop the payload on the dreadnought mm-hmm. um to yeah like help the resistance and prevent the flagship from be- being blown up right at the start of the film and this is such a great little sequence it's like really wonderful movie making in my opinion because it's all silent there's no dialogue needed and it's all just conveyed through those very like tight visuals and mm-hmm. the like expressions on people's faces and yeah it's so effective and it really really makes you invest in Paige in this really like deep and powerful way and then I think that's really great because it does prepare you to buy into Rose's emotions later on but what did you think about this scene Kirsty? Yeah, I think it's really fantastic. The actress is incredible. Yeah. And I think what it does such a great job, especially on like first viewing, when you're not quite familiar with the necklace motif, um, Mm. unless you've been paying attention to the promotion. But so the story stands on its own. It's not just about this character connecting to Rose. It's that you care about her already in her own right. Yeah. Which is really remarkable because we hear her say, I think, one person's name. Like that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just done so well. And I think you were saying last week when you were watching it in the theater with someone, they were just like biting their nails, like what is going to happen? Like she has to do this and everything is relying on her in that moment. And yeah, it's, uh, I try not to get upset with Poe cause I'm like, why did you, I know he has that look on his face when like the dreadnought does blow up and you see pages bomber falling into it but mm. it's like oh how could you do this how could you sacrifice page <laughs> yeah yeah no it is really like emotional and intense and god you'll i think your heart really skips a beat when um like the button that she needs to press when it looks like oh, she's yeah. missed it it really and, does look like it at first yeah <laughs> like no and then at the very, very last moment, he grabs it and drops it. And then the way they just show you that like really huge close-up of her face and she's like closing her eyes as like yeah. all the bombs explode. And it's like... <laughs> yeah, and reaching to touch the medallion. Oh, God. Seriously, that just gave me this huge shiver. It's really creepy. It's like a ghost <laughs> for me or something. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's really a great fantastic. scene. Right. Then we get our first scene with Finn. And it's just after the evacuation. And he kind of like jolts awake. And of course, the first word on his lips is Ray. And yeah, then he is kind of like disorientated and he wanders down a hallway and Poe sees him and it's like Finn naked leaking back because mm-hmm. he's reading off BB-8. And Poe goes over and speaks to Finn. And of course, Finn is only interested in finding out where Ray is. Um, How did you feel about it? It's like a introduction to the character in this movie, Kirsty. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense that he's so single-mindedly focused on Ray because if you think about where he was before he got knocked out in The Force Awakens, like that's who he was fighting to save. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that all I'm good with. Um, sorry to start out with some negativity when it comes to Finn, mm. but uh, I know it's like supposed to be funny, him whole like waking up, hitting his head, and then falling out of the bed, but yeah. it seems... Uh, mm, I don't know. It's like a little uncomfortable for me how his recovery is kind of played for laughs, especially given some of the comments that we got from John in the promotion before the movie, um, because there was an article that he was talking about um, how John's 
how Finn's recovery was going to be tough and that the scar would continue to burn for him mm. and that he was going to have this like slow recovery process. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's ever actually mentioned that he has injuries. Yeah, it, it just isn't a thing, really. It doesn't like factor into the story at all. And yeah, like, again, like I don't like to be negative, so I'll try and keep it brief. But it did kind of strike a bit of a sour note for me as well. I think especially because John, like in terms of the performance, he seemed to be playing it very, very straight, which I think is kind of how it should have been, like all around. Because when he says Ray, and like when he asks Poe, where's Ray? All of that is very serious. He's not saying it like a jokey or comedic way. But in terms of the physicality of how his early scenes are managed yeah where he's all... like wandering around in a daze and the water's leaking out of his suit and stuff yeah it just felt like a bit undignified to me i guess yeah and... it's it, it's a yeah. good setup of his arc in terms of like focusing only on his friend and then starting to learn more about the the two sides and in the end like devoting his life to the cause but um mm. yeah i I guess this is part of the larger conversation about the role that humor plays in the movie. I know people are quite divided on that. Mm. Some of it works and some of it's a bit like it's it's funny on a level. And then you think about it and you're like, well, they're talking about um, Kylo's injuries in quite a serious way. Like his drawn attention to in terms of how his scar reflects his soul being split to the bone or his spirit yeah. or whatever, whatever the line is. So, yeah. I think Ryan maybe felt a bit too self-conscious about the need to have lots of humour in the film because like, I don't go as far as some people do so I think a lot of the humour did work and there are parts that I find really, really funny and love. And me too, there are parts where I'm still laughing and I've seen it like seven times, yeah. Exactly, which is lovely. Um, But yeah, I think stuff like this, it just wasn't really needed and it did feel like it was in there because there was this feeling that, oh, we need some levity here. So we'll add in humour in this way and this way and this way. And yeah, I just don't think it was necessary. Um, right, then Finn, like he's kind of he Finn doesn't really have much of a presence in the film for a little while after like the scene where he wakes up. He's generally just like an ancillary character, like in scenes of like Poe and Leia. And I do like, like how he you can see him visibly relax once Leia tells him about the beacon. Yes, um, that's true. Yeah, so like at that point, you wonder if he's starting to formulate a plan already to escape and find Ray, but I guess it's not until it drops later on and he picks it up that it's like, okay, now yeah. I have the means to do that. Yeah. Um, when he says things like, until she gets back, what's the plan? I, I can't remember the exact quote, but you, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. It's kind of clear that the resistance stuff is taking a bit of a backseat to him. Like he's like, okay, well, what are we going to do in the meantime, as opposed to that being what he should actually be focusing on? Yeah, no, definitely. I think his um, like focus in the early parts of the film is almost entirely personal, and then obviously that's like the starting point for his arc because the journey that Finn goes on is moving away from this like desire just to see this one person, Ray, be safe, to this desire to see everyone safe and fight for this larger cause. Mm. And I like that when Poe is kind of thrown back when Kylo attacks the the hangar. Um, you kind of get this mirroring of Poe running to help Finn at the beginning. Mm, yeah. Or Storm Pilot Ship was very happy about. <laughs> yeah, there were a few nice moments. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so then Finn, he picks up the tracker after Leia is rendered unconscious in the attack. And then he 
clearly enacts like a plan to escape the resistance and go somewhere safe so that he can rendezvous with Ray. Um, yeah. And this, of course, is when he meets Rose. I think I really, I think I said this before in the Ray episode, but I really like the way Ryan jumps between the Ray and Finn subplots by using mm. the beacon as a motif. Yes. Um, you only see it in the early parts of the movie, obviously, but then the then the beacon comes back at the end when Ray is trying to find them on the Falcon. But I think it worked really well. Yeah, it really allowed for some nice like editing tricks in terms of like jumping back and forth. Because otherwise it's so easy for that island action to feel so completely detached. And you kind of need Ray to be on his mind in order for that transition to feel natural. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah, so Rose obviously meets Finn and she is starstruck by him. Because, yeah, a big part of her characterization is she like idolizes these resistance heroes and Finn is one of the people she looks up to. Um, and yeah, Finn is like being like quite humble and like dismissing like everything she's saying. And Rose says, but you are a hero. You left the First Order. What you did on the Starkiller base? When we heard about it, my sister Paige said, Rose, that's a real hero. No right from wrong and don't run away when it gets hard, she said. And now I think about it, I actually really like that idea of the hero worship for Finn coming in. So I think it does feed into this larger theme of these new characters becoming the legends. Like Luke was once the legend and Luke inspired Rey. But now's the time when these young heroes need to step up and embrace their destinies as the new heroes to the new generation. And yeah, I think that's lovely. Yeah, and I think from Rose's perspective as well, it's really cool the way that she sees him as this untouchable, impressive hero at the start. And then that is quickly, it's quickly altered. Like I was surprised that it was altered within that same scene, actually. I thought the hero worship might go on a bit longer. Yeah. Um, But it's cool because then you see more of Rose's perspective and they can be more genuine with each other and say how they really feel about things. And then over the course of the movie, Finn is built up again to be that hero for her, but it's a hero that she feels on equal footing with because they've done this thing together. Yes, exactly. He's like less she's a hero mythological too. person. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really nice and well done. Um, I do feel sorry for Rose, though, because um, she looks so completely disillusioned when she realises that Finn was actually trying to skip the resistance. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like... <laughs> can't get over that like in their very first meeting she zaps him unconscious and yeah like again it's something that I kind of do wonder if there might have been a different way of handling it because yeah I do feel like Finn he gets the short shrift in terms of he's put into lots of like situations where he's made to look a bit silly or like zapped around like that you know it's like yeah BB-8 and Ray did it to him in Force Awakens as well yeah, exactly. Guy, guy. Yeah. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, he better it better not happen in episode nine, seriously. It's not the kind of running theme that I particularly enjoy. Um but I will say that I love the visual of like Rose like putting all her heft into dragging him along on that car. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's so tiny. I think their first exchange is so cute as well, and he's like, May the force be with you. <laughs> yes. Like, Can you please go away now? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, I just appreciate how it very quickly sets them up on this level playing field. And then that's that's really especially important for Rose to have that confidence to then assert herself. And then they formulate this plan together to get to the supremacy. 
which is really interesting because then in the next scene when he's presenting it to Pearl, and I think this is when kind of those themes of masculinity and the the female characters kind of teaching the male characters things. Um, I don't know a better way to phrase that, to be honest, because that's kind of what you see. That um, he's presenting it to Poe, but really it's Rose who knows more about that technical stuff. And um, yeah. he like walks in front of her as she's trying to say something to Poe. Mm. It's like, I don't want to say mansplaining because, <laughs> because this is Star Wars. You know, you're not going to get these like real world concepts in the same way that I don't think that Poe's story is about him being misogynistic towards Holdo. It's not that simple. But yeah. I think the writers are trying to like have these little elements of social commentary. Yeah. I didn't actually notice that too much when I see it again, which I will. I'll have to look out for that. Like, again, it's the good thing about watching it a gazillion times because you're always picking up on new things. Um, but yeah, like that exposition where they're like going back and forth between each other. Like, I found that on subsequent viewings, I've tried really hard to understand what they're saying and the logic of the plan. But I've just accepted that I don't understand. Oh, yeah. I always kind of switch off when people talk about that kind of stuff in movies. Yeah, it's kind of like, okay, this is the time for my brain to take a break. Thanks. It's not real stuff anyway. (laughs) It's like, we need to blah, 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 jargon, blah, blah, blah. Um, There's something about disabling the tracker and them having six minutes before they can reset it or blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. They're on a clock, basically. Yeah, I think I just like hurt my brain by trying to think about how the tracker worked in the first place. It's like, yeah, and I, I'm not even going to go into that because I still don't know. So, yeah. Um, right. And then the next thing that happens with Finn and Rose after they've explained the plan and they have been told to go and find the Master Code Breaker by Mars is they go down to Canto Bite. And... Oh, there was one other thing. Sorry, I wanted mm-hmm. to point out when yeah. Rose is kind of pulling him along. I like that she calls him a traitor because it is kind of echoing obviously what Kylo accuses him of in The Force Awakens, he calls him a traitor as well. Mm. So Finn is at this point where he's kind of perceived as a traitor on both sides. Oh, that's um, a really good point, yeah. So I, I do feel like that's setting up what his arc's going to be about, that, yeah, he has to make that choice. Exactly. And I also like that in the scene where they're explaining to Poe, Poe asks, how did you guys meet? And Rose could have easily like grasped him and said oh he was trying to abandon the resistance which would cause all kinds of complications to be honest and Poe would probably be appalled by that um but she doesn't and she I can't quite remember what she does say but yeah she doesn't like drop him in it basically and she I says that's... I think she says just luck and then Poe's like right. oh good luck and she's like oh I'm not sure yet but uh, I like okay. because again she's like expressing this skepticism like I guess we'll see um yeah, yeah, which you, is nice and mature. That, yeah, you get that worried look from Finn, like he thinks that she might tell on him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and at that point, like, they have this mission together, and she knows that that's more important. Yeah, exactly. The mission's more important. There's also this sign of like the first, like she, like she's taken like a leap of faith, basically, because she's trusting him, like not to do it again, basically, by showing that trust. So, yeah. You also got the famous biohexacrypt line. Oh gosh, yeah, bless him. <laughs> Which I actually really like because um, he's explaining to them, no, it's going to reset. Um, so, so they need the codebreaker. That obviously sets up the next part. But it's again emphasizing how Finn knows how tightly secure the first order is, and yet he's mm. still willing to go and do this. Yeah, exactly. So it's a show of bravery. 
I could have done without the whole the guy who used to mop it line because there has been already so much like oh Finn's just a janitor stuff but again he was so yeah it depends on how you look at it I guess like if you I, I, you kind of get it later with Holder as, as well where she's like the stormtrooper and a who now yeah um, it is emphasizing that these two are nobodies in the you know Star Wars sense but again you see that with Ray's side of the story too right that these yeah. people come from nothing and still achieve greatness it's true they're the most humble uh right we ready to move on to canto bite yeah oh there was sorry one more thing. <laughs> don't worry sorry i just have notes here from when i watched it again yesterday <laughs> oh you saw um, it again yesterday i wasn't sure you were able to catch a screen yeah i managed to work it out ah, um, nice yeah there's a the part where he hands the beacon over to poe i hadn't picked up on it before but I really like that that kind of symbolizes him starting to let go of Ray because at that point he focuses on the mission with Rose. Yes. So that's a pretty big deal for his, a big deal, ha um, <laughs> huge deal <laughs> for his development. Yeah. I've seen some people complain that, okay, well, after that, we don't really hear him talking about Ray again until they see each other on crate. But I think that's partly the point that he's found this higher purpose. Mm. So yeah. I just, I like again how the big, used to symbolize that i feel like those beacons were used really well yeah they're definitely it's like a symbol of so much more than its literal purpose which Mm -hmm. is really nice and yeah like you say it's a real show of like trust and like it's like the first real indication that his priorities shifting and that he's willing to let go of that attachment like in a healthy way not in the sense like oh screw ray but in the sense that there is more to this than just ray which I think in a way, now I think about it, that does provide an interesting contrast to Kylo Ren. Because Kylo Ren's mistake is al- almost similar to Finn's, like at the start of the movie. So Kylo at the end of the movie is oddly in a kind of similar place to where Finn is at the start of the movie. Because mm-hmm. they're both very single-minded and just obsessed with Rey, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> it's very blunt, but I do think it's the truth. And... Yeah, like Finn obviously gets over that by finding something larger to fight for and something larger to believe in. And Kylo, he doesn't really have that. He doesn't really have anything else, not anything that genuinely means anything. And that's why he ends the film in such a sad and desolate place. Yeah, because you wonder if his... Not to go on this big Kylo diversion too much, but I I think it's great, actually. I haven't picked up on this until you pointed out here. I loved in The Force Awakens that Finn and Kylo were foils. So even though they don't share scenes here, it'd be pretty cool if that was, you know, something going on there. Um, And yeah, you wonder at the end, has Kylo's entire purpose in the first order been about attacking and bringing down Luke Skywalker? Because now that's gone. Mm. What are we going to see from him? Mm. Because yeah, Finn and Rey have found their purpose. Is he going to? Yeah. I'd imagine that's going to be what we see in episode nine, him finding his purpose. But mm. yeah, no, it's exciting. And like you say, it's nice to think about the parallels between Finn and Kylo because they're definitely there in The Force Awakens. And now I think about it, I do believe they're still there in The Last Jedi. They're just not as apparent because they don't actually interact like they do in The Force Awakens. Yeah. Um. Right, now are we ready for Canto Bite? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry it's fine like <laughs> i think the thing is that it's fresher in your mind than it is mine because you saw it yesterday and i last saw it over a week ago right. so yeah if i miss out on anything please do always feel free to button and i'm sure when you were watching it last week you were focusing on kylo because that's what we were talking about that week so yesterday i was like fully focusing on 
fear and rose so yeah there were little things that I might maybe had like subconsciously registered to me before but I hadn't really thought about their meaning and impact on the story yeah which is why it's great to have you here thank you (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so do you want to set up the canto bite stuff yeah, so first we see Finn and Rose leaving the resistance with Connix and Poe's help. Mm. Um, his, uh, I, I think Connix is great in this movie, actually. I was pleasantly surprised by how much Billy was, was on the screen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're basically committing treason, right? They're eluding Holdo. She asks, what's that? And they lie to her. Yeah. Um, and you get Finn again making clear that they're on a clock with... Rose, I think he says the exact amount of hours that they have before they run out of fuel. So at that point, it is setting up like, okay, this is the mission. These are the stakes. We are short on time here, Um, which I think kind of, I almost think it's part of the point when we get, I will get into it later when we talk about the the Favia chase scene, that you have the length of this going on and you see how far away they have gotten from their goal, which is to find the master codebreaker and get him to help them. That mm. it's like adding to that level of frustration for the viewer because <laughs> yes. you can see them failing in real time. <laughs> um, and I just love like Finn reacting to Rose's grumpiness about Canto Pai. I just love their dynamic uh, yeah. because she is like world weary because this is stuff that's really affected her life. And while it has impacted Finn's, he's maybe, um, I don't want to use the word ignorant, but. He's naive to it at this point because he spent his life within the First Order um, mm. eating up their propaganda. Um, yeah. So he's really wide-eyed at this glamour, which yeah. I think is very relatable for the audience, really, right? Yeah, definitely. Even when you saw Canto Bite in the promotion, it was like, ooh, it's all glitzy and new, and it vaguely reminds me of the prequels, like that there's something quite different from The Force Awakens here. This is something that Finn hasn't seen before. So, of course, he's going to be like, eating everything up you know yeah um, and like this is the best place ever yeah and i like that it's it's rose that points out to him that this is all the stuff that has funded she doesn't say explicitly in terms of um his indoctrina- indoctrination and brainwashing within the first order but she says like how do you think like where, where do you think these people will get their money from it's from war mm. so really quite powerful yeah and I also like it, it's important to think about it in the context of where Finn comes from, because he will he won't have had access to like leisure uh, mm-hmm. activities, the like of which are available on Canto Bite. So of course it's all gonna seem like a magical playground to him. Yeah. Because his whole life he's been like buried deep in this military system. And yeah, I doubt there's like a much in the way of like a rec room <laughs> in like the stormtrooper training facility. Or if there is, it would be very basic. And yeah, there certainly won't have been like luxuries, the like of which he saw on Canto Bite. So that is all completely and totally new for him. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something very poignant about that in a way, because he is like a child in a candy shop for the first time. And yeah, of course it's magical to him. Yeah, but I like that he quite quickly picks up on what Rose is saying and asks her like, and I can't remember the line exactly, but she, she is like, look closer, you know, there's something mm. more going on beneath the surface here. How do you think all of this comes about? Yeah. Um, and I do think that kind of in a way sets the stage for him thinking in that very black and white way for like who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. So that when he meets DJ, there's this moment of, Oh, wait a minute. Is it that simple? Obviously, it turns out in the end, yes, it is actually that simple for Finn because 
he sees the effect that that kind of apathy has but Mm. um yeah you need to set the stage for that first i guess yeah exactly because yeah there's like a bit of a bonding moment for finn and rose on the balcony when they're looking out on the faviers and then rose like urges finn to look on closer and then when he does he actually sees like the horses being whipped and he sees the children being punished because they're not following orders or something and like as he's looking like rose basically explains her backstory which is the first order stripped our ore to finance their military then shelled us to test their weapons they took everything we had and who do you think these people are there's only one business in the galaxy that'll get you this rich war selling weapons to the first order i wish i could put my fist through this whole lousy beautiful town and i like that because it also shows that rose is naive to an extent because she's only talking about selling weapons to the First Order. And later on, DJ actually shows Finn, well, they were selling weapons to the Resistance and the First Order. Mm-hmm. So it's not as black and white as you think, because shouldn't the people supplying the good guys of weapons also be good guys? Yeah. You know? And that's not part of, like, Rose's doctrine, because, yeah, it is quite black and white, and it's clear who's good and who's bad. And obviously the whole point of DJ is to complicate that. And you're right in that there is like still a clear moral through line in that we're not meant to be looking at DJ and thinking, what a stand-up swell guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it does add some extra nuance, which I appreciate. Yeah, exactly. And I think it this part does a really great job at getting deeper with Rose because you start to see how much she is fueled by this anger at what happened to her, right? Like the... Mm. This is why she joined the fight with her sister because, well, their planet was destroyed. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's very personal for her. And when she says, like, I wish I could put my fist through this whole lousy town, like, that is kind of what they do next. Mm. But I think she realizes it's not enough. Yeah. That's actually one of the things I might, like, take issue with a bit because this is jumping ahead a little and we'll talk about this properly in a moment. But like after they do escape and they're setting the Favia free, like Finn says, it was worth it though to tear up that town, make him hurt, which is basically what Rose had said she'd wanted to do when they were standing on the balcony. But then in this moment, which feels like it happens like 10 minutes later, Rose removes the saddle of the Favia and says, now it's worth it. And that for me is a little bit of flaw because I don't feel like the movie makes you understand how Rose gets from that place of being I wish I could put my fist through this whole lousy beautiful town to basically like saying no you're wrong Finn <laughs> like, <laughs> with what she does later because he's basically expressing the sentiment that she was just expressing but now she's moved on from that sentiment and maybe I didn't now really get the sense of how maybe now that they've done that she's realized that it's not going to give her the satisfaction that she was hoping for I definitely think that's probably what they were going for. I just don't think it came through quite well enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I get the impression, and in fact, it's not just an impression, because there's stuff in this, um, in reference to this in the art book, but there's stuff that was cut from Canto Bite. Yeah. Um, so maybe there were lines in between that kind of showed that progression a bit more explicitly. Yeah, that's what I imagine as well. I, I do think it was there. It's just in the interests of time and keeping things tight, they kind of like cut it down to the bare minimum in that in that sense we're probably missing out on some of the like nuanced character development and growth mm-hmm. um yeah to jump back after finn and rose might have been on the balcony looking at the five-year abuse and everything 
they find the master codebreaker who is Justin Faroe looking so magnificently camp that I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course they can't actually approach him because they are essentially take, um, arrested for a parking offence, which is a bit embarrassing, but that's literally what happens. I like this because if they're captured like just as they find him and it's kind of foreshadowing what happens later when they're captured just as Rose is about to disable the tracker. It's like they come so close to success and then it's failure. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's very accurate. Um, yeah, so they're hauled off to jail. I love the way that the... Like policeman, he literally just slung Rose over his shoulder. Like she I was know, nothing. it's so callous. And the way that they throw BBA, Bobby. Yeah, I think the sound effect makes that makes that especially worst. Yeah, especially bad because it's just this awful like clunky noise. It's like droid abuse. Exactly, I'm appalled. I'm appalled. <laughs> yeah, and then when they're in the jail, of course they're approached by everyone's favorite stutterer, DJ. <laughs> I and love his introduction into the story. <laughs> He's so he, slimy. He does. He does such a great job. He does. I really like DJ. Um, like I do think sometimes the stutter is a bit too much, but only in the sense that it might be too much if you don't love camp, and I love camp. So. Mm. Especially in Star <laughs> Wars. Yeah, exactly. Is the kind of film series we can get away with that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like he's introduced and he's very, very slimy and underhand from the very beginning and Finn and Rose are understandably suspicious of him. Yeah, this is interesting because it's almost like a mirror of how Finn re- reacts to Canto Bite. Like mm. he's judging DJ by his cover, right? So him, like the way that Rose and Finn kind of turn away from him and they're almost repulsed by his appearance and mannerisms. Like mm. it's played for comedy, but I think it's also supposed to be a mirror image of the glamour. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, because DJ looks so grotty. And I think that's also meant to be like what the audience does as well. You're meant to look at him and think, oh, I don't like him. He makes me feel all uncomfortable. (laughs) And then, of course, the film like plays with that as it goes along because there are like little moments that may think, oh, is he maybe a good guy? Oh, I think he's actually really bad. Oh, is he maybe a good guy? And yeah, it goes up and down like that and keeps you guessing, which is good. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like Lando because I have seen comparisons made and it's different from Lando because the whole thing with Lando is that he does seem completely friendly and like nice for the most part, like right up until the moment when he betrays them. And there's never any like suggestion that he's underhand on the basis of his appearance because he's very like swish and like stylish and he looks very charming and lovely. Um, yeah, because with Lando, there's this idea of him having that pre-existing relationship with Han Mm. and um, he's really put between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like almost the reverse in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yep. So then they kind of are separated from DJ because they just burst out and they want to get out of there as soon as possible. And I think the idea is that they don't actually trust DJ enough to make a deal with him. Mm. They're just happy to take advantage of the fact that he set them free so they make it down the sewers and they then meet the famous stable children. Finn is pretty grumpy at this point. And he's like, he keeps deferring to Rose and he's like, now what? Yeah. <laughs> well, that smelled great. <laughs> yeah. Rose is like the child liaison person at this point. 
<laughs> which is good because without getting the trust of those children everything would go horribly wrong mm-hmm. um yeah and i love rose's ring by the way her resistance ring that's yeah. like the coolest thing um but yeah so they basically sweet talk the kids and they get their help to escape on the favias is there anything you want to say about the stables or anything um not really okay good there wasn't anything i wanted to say (laughs) i mean i feel bad for the policemen getting trampled (laughs) yeah like seriously i i do think there's um like they are just doing their jobs man you know (laughs) brian's like (laughs) sorry police (laughs) the system i could have the system from within my 250 million dollar (laughs) movie so funny anti-capitalist message in from the mouth <laughs> yeah I, I love it because that's so such a thing in hollywood movies because they do often have these very like left-leaning and progressive messages which is great but yeah there's just this irony about them coming from these huge capitalist driven 600 million dollars <laughs> exactly oh my gosh um but yeah again i think it's nice to see the children that finn and rose are talking to respond to that like promise of hope that the resistance embodies because i think those kids they remind me very much of ray in the force awakens mm-hmm. like the moment finn suggests that he's from the resistance ray is immediately enraptured like she seems completely caught up in like the romance of it and the excitement and the adventure mm-hmm. and then she automatically like wants to get on board more and yeah i think it's the same with the kids just to an even greater extreme because they're actual children yeah that's true um what do you think about the chase scene um like i think it's really well done in terms of like the effects look amazing like that effect shot of all the favias like leaping from the wall onto the beach it's so incredibly beautiful Mm -hmm. every time i've watched the movie that's really stood out to me as a really beautiful shot um but i don't know just maybe feels a bit protracted like i felt like i saw too many parts of the city get destroyed almost (laughs) and like by the time they're kind of like riding the favier through that like corridor almost and there's all the lights and they get tangled up i was kind of like yeah i'm kind of done with this now yeah apparently there was even more stuff that got cut as well there was supposed to be like a spa or bathhouse or whatever you call it yeah i I saw that yeah it's very like almost Marie Antoinette like let's trash this cake shop and (laughs) (laughs) spill the tea (laughs) yeah they really really wanted to make a point of that flagrant destruction (laughs) which of course is relevant because of those lines that we were talking about before like about tearing up that town making them hurt because unless you actually show them tearing up the town and making them hurt then the line doesn't really work but yeah I, I don't know and I think it's also just the point is there's also just the thing that this action i think it comes at the point in the movie when you're getting really interesting stuff going on with the kylo and ray strand Mm -hmm. and it kind of does suffer a little bit by comparison because there's not as much stuff going on in the finn and rose story that's as dramatically interesting as that i suppose like at this point i do like a lot of the interactions between rose and finn like the Mm -hmm. way he's he, like, chides her for enjoying being on the Favia and stuff. Yes. Um, and we know for extra material that, like, that was a dream for Rose to ride a Favia one day and for Paige, too. So that's really meaningful for her. And he's like, stop enjoying this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Um, and then, like, 
the way his look lingers on Rose, like after she lets Safavia go. Like, mm. I've seen some criticism that there's not this romance set up between them, and I think it is there. It's just pretty subtle. Yeah, I it's think that it's he's... subtle, and they also have much more urgent things on their minds. Right. So. The way he looks at her, it's like, I don't know, he's starting to realise how much there is to learn about the world, and starting to appreciate her being part of his journey. Yeah, definitely. He He's seen her as like a more rounded person. I think before they were kind of like thrown together by the mission and it's more about learning who she is as a person. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of just wish there had been a bit more about Finn. So I feel like we find out a lot about Rose's history, but not so much about Finn's. And I think again, that goes back to stuff being deleted because I know there like was a deleted scene where like Finn was talking about Ray and getting back to Ray and like Rose is a bit jealous. Mm-hmm. And I think that might've been interesting to see Finn talking about himself a bit. Yeah. So, like, there maybe would have been an opportunity for that when she was talking about how her planet was destroyed by the First Order. He could have said something about his experiences growing up within the Order. Yeah, exactly. Like, just as, like, a nice compliment and to keep it balanced. Mm. Um, yeah. So then DJ basically picks Finn and Rose up when they're in utmost peril and they all start heading off towards the Supremacy. And there's actually some really nice bonding stuff between Finn and DJ, which I really appreciate. <laughs> um, I like because... how all that starts, like with Finn becoming quite protective of Rose with the like, you know, with the necklace. Yeah, that he knows yeah. at that point why that matters to her. Yeah, no, which is really sweet. And again, it's about that whole personal connection because he wouldn't have been saying that a little bit earlier. I don't think it's because he knows her a bit more, and there's clearly been in interaction like whether it's a deleted scene or not is kind of immaterial where she's explained the significance of the necklace to him mm-hmm. and yeah it's nice it shows that they're bonding they value each other like that and um yeah so um what was i going to say yes i think the whole idea with the rose and finn characters the whole idea with the rose and dj characters is that they're very much like the good angel and the bad angel sitting on Finn's shoulders. Mm. And yeah, DJ is very much like the bad angel who's like whispering like poison and doubts in his ears. Whereas like Rose is very like upstanding and morally righteous. Um, Yes, we have this exchange between Finn and DJ. And yeah, do you want to be Finn and I'll be DJ? Sure. At least you're stealing from the bad guys and helping the good. Good guys, bad guys, made up words. Let's see who formerly owned this gorgeous hunker. <laughs> ah, this guy was like an arms dealer. Made his bank selling weapons to the bad guys. Oh, and the good. Finn, let me learn you something big. It's all a machine partner. Live free, don't join. And yeah, I like that. That's potentially a very enticing offer for Finn. Because, yeah, at the start of the film, he was all about don't join. He was like, look, I don't have any problems with Resistance, but I don't want to be part of you. I don't want to be part of the First Order. I don't want to be part of the Resistance. I just want Rey. Like, he wants to be in like that middle ground where he doesn't have to commit to anything. And, yeah, like DJ basically presents that argument to him. So there is a temptation there. But I think by this point in the movie, Finn's kind of grown beyond that. And he is pretty confident about where his allegiances lie so i don't see him as being like tempted at all by dj's ideology i think it maybe puzzles him a bit because he had 
like been thinking more along Rose's line of thought, but I don't think it genuinely like makes him want to stray from the path he's on. Yeah, it's more like DJ just kind of presenting this other perspective. Um, yeah. Which is valuable because Finn is still learning about the world and that not everyone will be neatly divided between the good and the bad. Like, there is this war going on, but there's also people just trying to live their lives and get by. Yeah, exactly. And that's not necessarily evil. It's just how it is Mm -hmm. to be DJ. Uh, Yeah, is there anything else you want to say? So I feel like there is quite a lot that happens on that ship, but it's not as fresh in my mind as it probably is for you. Um, well, I guess for Rose, giving up the medallion is a huge deal because the impression that they get there, I know she'll get it back later, but that that's the deposit. Um, mm. And while they're on a mission for the resistance, because it's not an official mission, it wasn't sanctioned by Holdo, um, that they have to offer something that they have personally. And yeah. we do know what a big deal that is for Rose. Like that's the last physical connection that she has to Paige. So yeah. So we see her crying over that necklace at the start, don't we? I love the way she swivels in the chair. Yes. <laughs> like when he's like, oh, actually, <laughs> she turns around like, just do it. <laughs> Palpatine yeah. style. Rose yeah. Palpatine. Oh, yes. I would so love that. Do I it. remember there was some kind of like, <laughs> I remember there was some kind of like crack theory on Reddit before the movie came out. That was like, Rose is related to an existing character. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Rose Palpatine, please. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. That's the story that clearly needs to be told. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, so then all three of them on their little shuttle, they make it onto the Supremacy and they put on some sweet, sweet disguises. One of my favourite jokes, the iron when it comes down and it turns oh, out god, it's yes. a ship. Yeah. I think that's amazing. So so funny. I didn't need that there because it is like it is a moment of levity in what otherwise is a very daunting mission for them, right? Like this really is Finn going back into the belly of the beast. Yeah. So that's the kind of humour I love. And I I guess maybe it helps that it's not really at the expense of any particular character. Right. Because I think those the, the scenes of Finn waking up, we kind of had a problem with them because it did feel like a bit undignified for Finn and it felt like he was the butt of the joke, which felt inappropriate and like tonally off. Whereas it's an iron. Yeah, this <laughs> is like a visual gag that's, I mean, it's a hardware wars kind of reference, right? So Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I like this part. Like everything gets very tense as they start to make their way through the tracker and you become conscious of how little time they have left and because of the other subplots everything is just like really boiling up right yeah exactly it's all building and building and building to the point where it almost becomes unbearable (laughs) of course dj surprises them by giving the medallion back yeah Mm -hmm. which i really liked especially because del toro he delivers it in such a way like when he's explaining the purpose of that particular metal, he explains it in a way that really does make you think in that moment, actually, this is a good guy. I like him now. Yeah, it kind of lures you back into thinking that he's on their side and it's right before he betrays them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and also, did you see that there was meant to be like a deleted scene of when they're like changing into their disguises and like Rose's hair like keeps on sticking out? And like Finn has to try and like, put it down but it doesn't work and yeah that's adorable i know i wish i kept that in yeah it would have been like two seconds of him like stroking her hair and the shipper in me would have been happy with that rhyme yeah 
I think we're going to get a lot of these Finn and Rose deleted scenes on the Blu-ray because I know there's like going to be about 20 minutes of stuff and I definitely get the impression that more was cut from their side than was cut from like the Luke, Ray, and Kylo stuff. Oh. So yeah, there's probably going to be lots of good stuff to come. Then fortunately, just as they break into the room of the tracker, uh, DJ, of course, betrays them and they get the full arsenal of the First Order in there, including good old Phasma, our favourite character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Finn coming face to face with her again must be basically his worst nightmare. Yeah, right. exactly. I kind of wish... I- <laughs> People probably get annoyed because we keep going, well, but if they just added this little thing, <laughs> hopefully we're not coming across as too critical. But just like little things like, um, I think it would have been nice for her to have been mentioned by Finn at some point, just yeah. to remind the audience of her role in his oppression and to cut, not because I understand why Ryan didn't like feel like they had time to devote time to extra scenes with phasma herself but just for finn Mm. to kind of acknowledge her it would have like foreshadowed it a a bit more and like built it up yeah definitely it would have made it a bit more personal Mm. because yeah when they do fight it does feel a bit it just feels like a bit obligatory it doesn't feel like there's those personal stakes there yeah especially because like their scene together at the end like when there's their final interaction in the force awakens that's kind of used to comic relief as well so Mm. it would have been kind of good to build that up a bit more yeah Exactly. But again, that might be in a deleted scene somewhere. Yeah, I really cannot wait for that Blu-ray. <laughs> um, yeah, so after they're captured, they're all taken off for execution. And I love the way he looks mm-hmm. when they're marching. Yes. Like Finn has this look of quiet rage. He has such an intense expression. Seriously, everything John Boyega does with the performance in the movie, it makes me think Stormtrooper Revolution for Nine. Stormtrooper Please. Revolution for Nine. He's it's so good. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And that would give Finn like such a good dramatic arc and it would really feel like so vital and crucial to the story. Because yeah, it's just so perfect and oh I want it. But I know we shouldn't go down that path because expectations are bad. But yeah, they're taken for execution and it shows how important they're considered to be because even General Huck shows up and Donald Gleason kills it so deliciously evil like the sneer he gives like Finn because yeah I bet to Huck's like Finn is like his worst nightmare in many ways because mm. he's the one who like bucks this like system of complete conformity and this like whole stormtrooper program is Huck's baby so it's going to be really important to Huck's that yeah we put this guy down because he's a danger yeah i mean that slap everything that slap is like absolutely sickening yeah <laughs> sound really of it vile bah and yeah then it's a bit painful to watch because um finn and rose realize just how badly things have gone wrong because mm-hmm. they realize that dj has betrayed the fact that the resistance shuttles have been used to get them down to the planet yeah and of course, there's real tragedy in that because, like, basically, if they hadn't gone on that mission at all, if they had just stayed on the Radus and everything had chugged along as it was meant to, then those shuttles, they would have got down to the surface of the planet unharmed because the First Order would never have realised. I guess this and... is kind of tied up in Poe's story as well, right? Because he mm. he wouldn't allow himself to defer to Holdo and trust that she knew what she was doing. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, they're responsible, really, for the destruction of the majority of the Resistance, which is really dark. Um, 
But yeah, I do think you see that in their reactions because they're both so agonized mm-hmm. when they hear that and they realize like what the stakes are. Um, and yeah, like it make obviously makes them very passionate and angry when they respond to DJ. Yeah. Finn, um, I think this must be the biggest example of swearing in a Star Wars movie. Is it? Yeah, I think it is. Should we let's I'm read quite up the dialogue? <laughs> Clutching yeah. my pearls here, Ryan. Do you want to be Finn? Do you want to say the bad yeah. word? Yeah, I okay. do. Good. You murdering bastard! Take it easy, Big F. They blow you up today, you blow them up tomorrow. It's just business. You're wrong. Maybe. <laughs> My stutter <laughs> is so bad. <laughs> I love DJ's like, line. Big F. I love them. Yeah, he has such like an idiosyncratic way of speaking. Yeah. You couldn't like give his lines to any other character which i appreciate um yeah and i just really like that last line from dj because that just embodies him it's like that apathy yeah and i definitely think the movie falls on the side of apathy is really just as evil as being one of the bad guys to be honest yeah it's that you're being complicit all those people on canto bites sipping their champagne yeah and it's the worst because you don't actually care about anything like you haven't like it's not even like dj is doing it because he loves someone dj is just doing it for himself Mm. and that's the worst i wonder if we'll get a i know they could do doing comics but i would be more likely to read a dj book yeah i I love a dj book yeah i wonder if he has an interesting backstory in terms of like how he got to this point maybe he did care at one point maybe it's like a reversal of han solo yeah if um like it made sense for the story in line, I would actually really like to see that character come back. Yeah. Because I do think he's interesting and there's lots of dramatic possibilities for him because he's so unreliable and he could go in so many different directions. Yeah, DJ could get a redemption arc. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> screw you, Kylo. DJ's the one with the big epic story. <laughs> Oscar winner Del Toro. Bye bye, Adam Driver. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Finn and Rose, they're on the brink of being executed, basically, at the moment when Holdo rams the ship in that awesome, awesome scene. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then Finn and Rose, they're trying to escape. I think actually when they come to, Rose is dragging Finn across the ground, isn't she? Yeah. They spend a lot of time dragging each other around. <laughs> yeah, especially Rose dragging Finn. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's dragging her at the end of the on-crate. But... Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But yeah, it builds up to that, I guess. Um, but yeah, then their escape is interrupted by Phasma, because of course Phasma and Finn have to fight. Um, and yeah, it's a bit of an underwhelming fight, I think, because of the reasons we discussed earlier. It's not really set up in terms of the emotional stakes. I think so... also there was just no way it was going to compete with the throne room. Yeah, exactly. Like, did it happen at the same time as that, or just after? No, it happened it, after, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, obviously, it is after. Yeah. So Sorry, it's like, yeah. yeah, you've just had this incredibly emotionally driven fight with Kylo and Ray side by side. And then, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's good in its own right. You know, it's pretty cool with the clashing blue weapons they have. And he's got some cool quips in there, like calling a chrome dome and everything. Yeah. But I just think it's it's always going to fall short in comparison. Um, and Phasma's yeah. falling feels a bit anticlimactic to me, too, because you kind of want... In, you kind of want him to like deliver that blow, but maybe yeah. it's more important that he doesn't. I don't know. 
Yeah. So we know from Boffin Spy, who is definitely, definitely legit, I believe in Boffin Spy 2016 sticker that I have on my non-existent car. Um, (laughs) According to the Boffin Spy report, um, like Phasma's arm was going to be knocked off. So clearly at one point, Finn was going to lop her arm off. And um, yeah, that is interesting to me that they did not go that way. I do think it's nice that he strikes her face and that you see that crack in the helmet so you can get a glimpse of the human under there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it did kind of feel like a bit anticlimactic in some ways. And yeah, they better not bring her back for nine. Please, oh, I don't please just let her die. Yeah, I really, yeah, just don't. <laughs> There's so many more interesting things they can do with the villain than that. Um, and just quickly... Um, can we do the um, final exchange between Phasma and Finn? Because it's amazing. Can I be Phasma, please? Sure. Okay. You were always scum. Rebel scum. Badass. That is iconic. Yeah, I do love that. I want like a t-shirt of Finn like at the moment when he says rebel scum. So he looks so proud. And I do think that's an important moment for Finn because that is the moment where he really does embrace his like allegiance to the yeah. rebellion. Like he is full on with the rebellion at that point. Mm-hmm. Like and there's no question of his loyalty. And yeah, I like that he takes like Phasma's attempt to like diminish him and say like he's so worthless and pathetic and he uses that as a source of pride basically. Yeah, it's a really powerful reclaiming. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, yeah, then do you want to explain what happens next, Kirsty? Yeah, Finn and Rose escape, they make it down to Cray, and they kind of rejoin the resistance, and they're all being shot at before um, they can make it clear that it's them. And I think there's that really powerful moment where Rose says, is this all that's left? And they see the result of their actions. Mm. Yeah, like, not that it's their fault, it's not like they were the ones that were firing, but I think it's kind of a core theme in the movie that people can have good intentions and still massively fail right mm. exactly yeah I, I do c- kind of wish that they'd lingered on that a little bit more because i do think you get that you you definitely get the message that they appreciate the level of loss that the resistance has been through and they realize the ramifications of their act- actions i just yeah i guess it's hard though so everything's moving so quickly at that point and it would have kind of slowed it down if they'd like shown finn and rose like embrace it and be like oh we destroyed it all i feel mm. so responsible so yeah it's about finding that balance i guess yeah and like they they just don't have time to linger on that stuff because there's new things to focus on like finn recognizes the death star tech and, and he gives that kind of inspiring speech about what the resistance has to do to buy the time before mm. help comes even though help's not going to come um, yeah or at least not in the form that they think. And when he's delivering that, you can see this look of determination in his eyes that wasn't there at the beginning of the movie. So again, it's about emphasising how much he's changed. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a good point about um, there not being time to linger on that. Um, like, the sense of loss. Because I do think that Finn, like, he tries to respond to that sense of loss by putting everything on the line like himself because he's like well other people have paid with their lives so that's why I'm prepared to give my life by going into this cannon to try and save what's left like, I think that's his thinking he's not about to stand around like moping about it he'll be like oh boohoo like all the resistance is gone I feel so bad but like he is prepared to like give his life because like I think in no small part because of that guilt and responsibility he feels yeah, because he's willing to sacrifice himself by flying into the cannon, but also later when Luke turns up 
And Poe says he's facing Kylo Ren. Immediately, Finn is like, well, we have to help him. Mm. You know? And really, that is very powerful because if you think about the last time Finn saw Kylo, things were not going well for him. Yeah, exactly. It's like a real act of bravery. And I think the whole thing with Finn in The Force Awakens is that he was always trying to run away to a certain extent. Like, even at the very end, like, on Starkiller Base, he's still running away with Rey. He's running away from what they're afraid of instead of confronting Kylo. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it's all about, yeah, I'm going to turn around and face you. So I do really think that Finn has a very clear and strong arc in the movie. Like, obviously, as we've discussed, there are ways in which it could have been improved on or made a bit clearer, but it's definitely present and I think it's important because I think having Finn go from The Force Awakens where he is scared and he is running and he is really only invested in Rey to then just having him be this completely loyal member of the Resistance with no personal attachments and no hang up on Rey, I think that would have struck a falser note. So yeah, like basically the First Order, they wheel out the big gun, the big cannon to break down the door of the facility that the Resistance are hiding in and the resistance members they all man their ski speeders to charge at the cannon and like also the AT-80s that are like moving towards them because they have to try and do something to delay them or like hopefully to even stop it um but then as they get closer and closer Poe realizes that it's like a hopeless effort and they're all being picked off even though Ray has helped them and got rid of the tie fighters that were after them um, so Poe calls off all the ski speeders and tells them all to turn around because he finally recognises the value of human life, which is an important lesson. <laughs> um, but Finn, he is determined to go on. So yeah, Kirsty, I think you should take over the narration at this point. So yeah, he's flying towards it and the others are telling him to stop and he's not listening. And he says, I won't let them win. And it's almost like, I wonder if this is kind of a commentary on sometimes you can go too far and you have to know when to pick your battles, right? Because it's, I mean, Poe's explicitly said it's a suicide mission. So at this point, you know, by the time the cannon's turned on, he's just going to be incinerated, basically, because they're in these tiny little speeders. He doesn't have a chance. And, And I think the whole point is that the mission was going to fail. Right. Like he wasn't going to achieve anything by keeping going and giving his life. It would have been a pointless sacrifice. Because I've had friends like argue about this bitterly with me because they really, really wanted Finn to give his own life in that moment because they felt that it would have like redeemed his mistakes in a way and that he would have then served like a worthwhile purpose in the narrative if he no, gave it would his have been life senseless. to save the resistance. I know, like that that's the thing. I don't think it can have come across as clearly as it was meant to because it was clear to me that it wasn't going to achieve anything and he was just going to give his life pointlessly. But I don't think that came through to some people because Mm. it is a recurring criticism I've seen. Okay. Yeah, I guess I've seen a lot of like anti-Rose sentiment because it's like, well, why did she stop him? (laughs) Which Mm, seems bizarre because like, of course we want Finn to survive and for Rose to save his life. Um, Yeah. I mean, what she does is incredible because she does risk her own safety in that moment too. Yeah. But that's what she says. That oh, well, do you want to like act it out this little bit? Yeah. So um, yeah. After like Rose charges into Finn's speeder to save him from pointlessly giving his life, because yeah, as we've established, it really would have been pointless, and it would have achieved nothing. <laughs> like Finn like rushes over to her, and she's like just clinging on to consciousness in like her cockpit. And we have Finn saying, 
Why would you do that, huh? I was almost there. Why would you stop me? I saved you, dummy. That's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, saving what we love. And then they kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I love this kiss because it's not a big, passionate, showy kiss. Um, It really emphasizes at that point, like, that, yeah, Rose just did this incredible thing and is feeling physically frail. But it's worth it with a line. I think the line is key. Um, And then, like, Finn's reaction as well. He looks so surprised. It's like he's not even sure what a kiss is. Yeah, it's really like adorably innocent, I think. Like it's first so like chaste and like brief. But I think it's really Rose like seizing on that chance. Kind of like, right, this is it. This is the moment. <laughs> because she obviously feels her consciousness slipping away as well. So it's like, ah, I gotta seize the day. <laughs> Who knows if I'll get another opportunity. Yeah, I mean, she basically tells him that she loves him. Yeah, it's really, really sweet. And I think it shows that they've really gone on like a big journey because at the start she was so angry with him mm. because he did like let her down in a way by letting down her impression of him as this great hero who's really brave and like so such like a upstanding guy. Um, but then over the course of the film, she did realise that he is to be admired and he is someone she loves and someone who's worth saving it's just that he's a more complicated fully realized person than she thought in her naivety at the start Mm -hmm. yeah for sure and i like that later on you because rose passes out basically you get that reciprocation in the form of finn finding the blanket and putting it over her yeah because in response to the kiss like finn does just look a bit like bewildered like what just happened right He's processing it and it just kind of fuels my sad head cannons about how the stormtroopers aren't allowed to love anyone. And he's like, what is this? What are these feelings? Oh, I do think that's actually backed up as well in the, like before the awakening short story about Finn. Yeah. So I think there is something like about how they discourage like friendships or something like that. Like, like, or maybe like intense relationships. No, because they are like in their own little squads, aren't they? I'll just ignore that. That's too complicated. I think, yeah, Finn is chastised, though, for trying to save the people in his squad. So oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. That's good. I wasn't talking up my ass. <laughs> and Finn has a lot of love to give. He does. He's a very loving, caring person. And that's why he's a hero. Um. Yeah, so then Finn, he drags Rose back to the base. And, yeah, he's very much concerned with her welfare and her well-being at this point, which is really sweet because... Yeah, it's clear that the feelings are reciprocated. And, um, yeah, then they all escape down the tunnel complex. And Ray lets them out by lifting some rocks. <laughs> and Finn and Ray have a lovely, lovely, lovely long hug. Yeah, what a great and hug. It's a marvellous hug. It just gives me the warm fuzzies just watching them. Mm-hmm. And seriously, like John's face especially... <laughs> It looks so real. Mm-hmm. I do think that was like his genuine response to hugging Daisy. Oh, <laughs> it's like that's so cute. I don't know what else to say about it. I think it's really cute, but it's like, well, there's not much to analyze. <laughs> it's obvious <laughs> that these characters have been separated for a period of time, but it's, it's not been a huge period of time, really, hasn't it? It's been a, like a few days, but yeah. so much has changed. They've both been on these crazy adventures, and um, yeah, it's kind of bringing it full circle for them. Yeah. 
Exactly. Things have gone far. Um, yep. And then I think the last time we really see Finn do anything like notable in the movie is when he is shown drawing that blanket over Rose as Ray watches them. Yeah. And yeah, as we've discussed, it's just about that reciprocation of the feeling and how he really cares about her and is looking out for her now. I love the little detail of him opening the drawer and kind of thumbing through the sacred text to find the blanket. Um, yes. Kind of shows me, and I'm probably reading too much into it, but that's kind of what I do. It almost gives me this hint that his and Ray's worlds are so different at that point, like that he thumbs through these books that are incredibly important, but that's not mm. what he's looking for. He's looking for something to to take care of Rose. Um, yeah. And I just, I'll, I'm really interested to see in nine how their interactions are going to go and if finn is like interested or at all invested in ray's use and understanding of the force um yeah how that stuff plays into things like her connection with kylo all sorts of things yeah. i'm so intensely curious about everything about nine because i think all the characters are going to be in quite a different place because i do think it's likely we're going to get a significant time jump and if that's the case i think they're all going to be that much further along in their journey towards maturity so to speak um, because yeah, I think they're all like young adolescents basically <laughs> in the Last Jedi. So if they were children in The Force Awakens, they're like young teens in The Last Jedi, like talking in terms of metaphor and everything. So they're all like experimenting with like first love and I know. all those sorts of feelings, Thank and you. it's so adorable. <laughs> um, yeah. So where will they be when they find that like mature love? And yeah, so, okay, yeah. I am really interested to see when we're going to find out what what the time jump will be because then you can start maybe like developing headcanons at least for like okay well Finn and Rose will have known each other for a year or just a few months or it all kind yeah. of you know, like well, Rose will probably have woken up and recovered at this point and you know stuff like that so yeah I could see that being like a celebration 2019 thing to talk about yeah but uh, in a way I really hope it's not quite that long <laughs> I just want JJ to start talking <laughs> Yeah, please, JJ. Please. <laughs> That's the worst, though, because he's not like he even has social media like Ryan. I know. So we're probably going to get even less. I think he has a Twitter account, but it's set to private. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's no fun, JJ. That's no fun. <laughs> not that I would ever blame anyone for keeping their Twitter private. My goodness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ryan and Pablo. Well, I, I won't say they have a lot of patience. Ryan does, but not so much about Pablo. <laughs> I get this part. <laughs> They have nerves of steel. <laughs> yeah, so are there any like thoughts you want to express about Finn and Rose in summary? Um, I don't know. I think, we're su- are we supposed to get books about them or have they already come out? Um, Like about them together or about them individually? Together. I thought we were going to get... I know that there are Finn comics coming. Um, mm. And obviously there are Rose books, but I would... Again, coming back to like all this deleted stuff from Canto Bite, I would love to have... I guess we'll get it in the novelization as well, like more about their interactions and perspectives on each other. I think those stories, I think they were about like the tie-in books for The Last Jedi. So it would be things like um, Finn ones. and Rose's Adventures on Canto Bite. So yeah, like adaptions of the movie basically, but just focused on that strand. Right. Yeah. So I don't think it means like extra material. It's just adaptation. Okay. Well, I would love to have more and you know it'd be great if one day we could get a force of destiny episode where rose is like the central heroine and finn is on an adventure with her oh yeah i really hope so i think i've seen um forces of destiny artwork with um rose and page yeah because it's tied in with the star wars adventures comics now i think right right yeah no so i'd i really hope we get more 
like from those characters through those through that medium mm-hmm. because it is a good way to explore like extra little bits that enrich it mm-hmm. yeah um yeah so i think that's just all wrapped up to be honest i've very much enjoyed that and it's nice to talk about something other than rain kylo even though we probably could continue to talk about that for like five hours it's important to remember that there are other facets to the story <laughs> yeah and it's how it all ties in together thematically um, exactly yeah you yeah. notice more parallels and stuff, I think. And it'll be interesting to start talking about it in other ways as well, beyond the focus on like single characters and single strands. Mm-hmm. So obviously when you separate it out, you are necessarily like missing certain things. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's very good. Anyhow, I am Rachel. You can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye!